like to ask for your kind attention, some, some thoughts on uh, what we're doing here. Um, I would like to um, identify a, a term in Buddhist psychology which is uh, known but often only known in one facet. The term is called nimitta. It is often translated as sign and many of you will be aware that nimittas are given a role in meditative development. So usually it is understood to be a mental sign and such a mental sign is appearing in one's mind as a relatively easily structured sort of image upon which then attention can be directed and such attention then deepens into forms of absorption, deep stillness of mind, unification of mind. Um, this is probably the most famous uh, notion of the terms nimitta in, here in the West. Um, and actually it's quite misleading, to be honest with you. The term occurs in the Pali Suttas a number of times um, in remarkably varied contexts. And a little closer look at this term reveals other usages of the term. So why do I say this is important? It is important because our attention latches onto nimittas. It latches onto signs. When we attend to sensory data, then we don't attend in impartial manner to a steady stream of sense impressions arriving at the, at the mind door through the eyes or the ears or the nose or the tongue or the body sense. Um, our attention is not at all impartial, as I have tried to outline. It is contrary, it is highly partial. It likes pleasant things and it tries to stay away from unpleasant things. Uh, it does so unless it is particularly fascinated with unpleasant things and then it begins again to be interested in unpleasant things because it has somehow decided that unpleasant things are the way to go. Yeah? So some of us uh, relish in the sweetness of nice things and some of us find it vitalizing to get annoyed about not nice things. Yeah? So we can be quite um, fascinated by things that are secretly vexing to us or annoying or we find some some things we find fascinatingly ugly or yeah so, so even that we're not so straightforward about but what the attention tends to pick up on is an imita is a sign yeah. so our attention, rather than attending impartially to a steady stream of sensory data flowing into our mind through our outer senses, our attention quasi-hovers and looks for signs. And these signs are then picked up and grasped, attached, focused on, turned into perceptions, reacted towards by our heart. And it makes sense to look a little more in detail at how the suttas refer to this term or how they describe this process because it has, irrespective of the strange language 
a great bearing for the economy of our attention. It is the beginning of our world. It is as attention is what creates or what reaches out to things, to forms of contact. And in some way, you could say intention, attention aggregates our world. Where our attention goes, this will be put into our system. This will become our experience. So it does make sense to look a little bit at the sort of the diet of attention. And we all know if you're, you know, if you're greedy by disposition, then you will organize your attention towards things that are looking promising to satisfy your wish for uh, gratification. Yeah? So we kind of we look where is the nicest cushion, where does the sun sign, where where is the nicest smile, you know, where can I see best? Yeah. Where um where do I like it most? Yeah. So we we make our attention work in the service of our tendency called say desire or called seeking of maximizing this experience in terms of pleasantness. You know, this doesn't sound highly immoral, trying to find the nicest cushion, the nicest spot. Where do I have my meal? But beside whom am I going to sit? Um, where is the nicest chair? This kind of thing. That doesn't sound immoral. It isn't. Still, uh, this is what we perceive then is in some way the response or the, the echo of what we seek, namely gratification, pleasant surroundings, optimized conditions for this particular system. If I go into the same situation anxious, then I will think differently. I will not look for where are things most gratifying. I will look for where are things most safe. Yeah. Can I sit close to the exit? Because, you know, I can always make a beeline out and gone. Yeah, so let me see there, close. Where does he not see me? Yeah, so, okay, okay, go close to the exit and behind the pillar. Um, <laughs> you know, where, where, where can I see everything and nobody sees me? So I go at the back, I, can't, I don't take the front pillar, I take the back pillar, you yeah? know? But that takes me a little further from the exit, so I need to rejig, you know? A little bit visibility, but then quicker to the exit, but less visibility, but a longer way. So I make some decisions there around this. Yeah? Um, if I'm of a slightly averse temperament, I will go in there and I'll say, oh, something's wrong with the paint in here, isn't it, God? Why do they always have colorblind people making the choices when it comes to interior decoration? I don't know. There's a spider web. Is this mindfulness? You know? <laughs> Something must have been dripping there, you know. Something must have been dripping there. I'm sure they have taken a cheap roof, roofer, you know. They're kind of, they're kind of make nice shrines, but then they save money on the roof, you know. What sort of logic is this? Uh, you know, these cushions look a bit weird, you know. Proper Japanese sofus have kapok in it, not this kind of spelt stuff. This is just degenerate Buddhism, you know. How can you get enlightened on a spelt sofu? Just no way. Yeah? So you kind of go in there and you find things that are wrong. You find things that are displeasing. You find things that uh, allow you to become indignant. Yeah? Uh, if you're confused, you kind of go in and say, oh God, am I late? No, am I, I'm, I'm early. 
Yeah, that's it. Are they here? There must, there must be meetings somewhere else, or yeah. There's only two of them here, so oh God, it's embarrassing. Am I in the wrong meeting here? So we go back to three steps. Well, do they all have cushions? Are they on the mats? Do they belong? Should I have taken one? I think I need to go and get another one because that's yeah. So okay, in three steps out, look around. You know, well, this is a good one, but oh God, I don't want to sit behind big burly man. No, 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 no. I just sit on the other side. Yeah, but then I can't see. You know, and he can't see me, so I'll, I'll just kind of get one behind, and then the wrong cushion, I get the other cushion, then, yeah. This is doubt, yeah? This is the kind of the, the, uh, the type of temperament that is uh, unsure, yeah? Vacillates, and uh, so depending on which kind of framework you're operating on, your attention will serve you in that mode. Attention is a very loyal servant, so whatever mode you're operating on, attention will be in the service of that mode. So if you're a karma charit, then your attention will serve you in the mode of gratification seeking. If you're a dosa charit, your attention will serve you in the mode of fault finding. Yeah? There's, a beautiful, there's a beautiful word for that in Pali. Um, uh, it's, it's listed amongst the things that if you have that tri trait of mind, it'll be very difficult, even if your teacher is, a, is, is very impressive. If you have that, that trait of mind going, it's very difficult to grow. You know? And the word for it is randa gavesi, one who seeks the crack, you know? one who seeks the fault line. You know? so, um, so if you're a, a dosa charit, if your temperament is inclined towards aversion and, uh, and hatred, then you will find things, your attention will serve you in finding things that give rise to that dominant emotion or that trait. So rather than seeking gratification, you will, think you will seek things that annoy you, that are offensive, that are rebarbative, that are just not perfect, that are negligent, you know, that are indicative of this being a bad universe. You know. Yet again, you're settled with a bad universe. And this allows you to go into your familiar vitalizing pattern of annoyance, victimization, feeling indignant, and generally leaving you with a mixture of mm, contempt and feeling sorry for yourself. You know. Often that is a bit, sort of a, that's a very famous mix. So, feeling I, I miss out again. You know, this is again a world in which things are not perfect, and everybody gets better things than I do, and I somehow, it never works for me. If you're confused, then you will find all things are overly complex. Nothing is clear. You find a lot of conflicting messages are being given. Mm, people are given giving off really weird signals. Sometimes they seem to like you, sometimes they don't seem to like you. Um, people tell you this, but they also tell you that. So you're kind of on the outlook for construing misunderstanding. You're on the outlook for finding doubtful things. You're on, this, you're, you're on the outlook for a situation in which perplexity is the normal state. Yeah? If you can get in a little panic, even better. You know, perplexity and a little panic, even better. You know, just a wonderful mix. Just <gasps> <laughs> yeah. And you're very vigilant. You're kind of very, 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 very vigilant. See everything and understand nothing. 
just all you do is turning into, into doubt. If you have a doubting mind, then you will turn every piece of information you have into doubt. This is really dreadful. Doubt can turn really anything into weaponry against you. Any piece of solid evidence you can turn against you, if you have a doubting mind. So you can't protect yourself with knowledge against doubt. Doubt is ingenious in turning all of your knowledge into wonderful equipment to make you doubt, to make you uncertain, to stack the odds against you, to develop probability scenario in which all your evidence is flawed. And you know, frankly, most of our evidence is rather shoddy, isn't it, when it comes to existential details. Um, so, where does Nimitta fit in there? Nimitta is what stands out to your attention that is run by a particular mode. There's one passage in which the Nimitta, <coughs> um, this is interesting, quite revealing, it says, the three poisons, loba, dosa, moha, uh, desire, aversion, and confusion, are the Nimitta karana, the ones, the, the sign makers. It is those three poisons of the mind that are, that are actually creating the signs your attention then latches onto, um, pretending these signs are objectively existing. But in fact, it is your greed, your hatred, and your um, uh, confusion that gives rise to the particularization of your sense data into certain types of signs that you then latch onto with your attention. In other words, you start basically with a particular color in your mind, and then you find a sign that seems to hold or become a projective screen for that color, and then your attention goes on to that thing, and then you feel justified in having that color in your mind. Yeah. That sounds a lot more complicated than it actually is, but it's very simple. You're angry, you think about something with anger, and you find reasons in what you think about to confirm you in your anger. We always do that. You're sad, you want to listen to sad music, you, you don't want to go into the sunlight, bright colors scare you, you want to hear sad stories, you don't want to see bright and happy people, you don't, want to, you don't have an interest in beginnings, you want falling leaves, uh, Mahler, Kindertortenlieder, and you, you know, just no dark, dark colors and procol harum or so, yeah, maybe, or, or worse, you know. If you're happy, then, you know, you see the lovers in, on, on, your, on the subway, you see, you know, bright colors in the sky, you see kids playing, all is wonderful. If you're grumpy, all you see is imperfection, lack of care, um, things are getting worse and worse, and this is probably the good bit and the bad bit, you know, this is the clear beginning of the troubled ending kind of thing. So if you have a particular mood, then your whole thinking is affected by that mood. Yeah. Your way of remembering your past. You're in a good mood, somebody's made you a compliment, you think, oh yeah, really intelligent people, these people, isn't it? And then you think about your life and you think, yeah, life is a sequence, uh, you know, a pearl string of privilege and one wonderful thing happened to you after the other. Next day, 
you know, things go wrong and it doesn't look good. Uh, people are missed their appointments. You're being blamed for things you didn't even do, uh, let alone feel responsible for. And then you think of your life as being a, a, a series of tragedies, misunderstandings, and just a, a drama with no end. You know? And you realize this is not true. There's people who show me childhood photographs and I'm actually laughing there, so, you know. I seem to have fun, although I don't remember this, I seem to have fun, you know. It can't be all have been miserable, traumatic and deprived, so there must, be, there must have been good moments because there's documentary evidence for this here, yeah. And it's very obvious that the way we think, the climate that is dominant in the mind when we reflect our, our lives or when we reflect our situation or our relationships particularly um, is deeply influencing the objects we actually meet in there. It is deeply influencing what we actually latch onto as objective correlates to our mood. Yanaponika um, had above his library, so I am told, a sign and says, we have the weather you have in mind. Yeah. Very simple. Uh, acknowledging that basically much of what we perceive to be outside is nothing else but uh, an outsourcing of our proper state, of our proper inner climate. Yeah. Now, how does this come together with Nimitta? It comes together with uh, the process of attention needs a landing platform. Sensory data is not flowing to us sort of quietly and in an impartial way, in a sort of steady, equal stream. We pick out things. Yeah? Attention, before it is trained and reasonably continuous, is episodic. Yeah? It snatches things. And it snatches things depending on my particular frame of mind. If it is anxious, it snatches on possible dangers and possible things that make me safe. If it is greedy, it snatches on things that promise gratification or that are possibly insulting to my tastes. If it is annoyed, it snatches for things that have gone wrong again and that corroborate my uh, annoyed outlook onto the world. This is important because obviously there's a kind of feedback loop. Yeah? If I'm um, if I'm going around complaining about things, chances are higher than I meet people who don't like me. And if I'm kind of complaining and find out that after a while of complaining, people respond to that with not liking me, I feel corroborated in my outlook that this is a place where people are just impatient and not kind. Yeah. If I'm, on the other hand, generous and happy and liberal, my time and my energy, and if I'm smiling and kind, there's a higher chance that people are treating me in the same way. So I, I come out of this experience corroborated to say, well, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy because I'm with good people. You know, wherever I turn, they're kind and nice. So we, we live in uh, reinforced worlds, performatively reinforced patterns that have somehow, uh, that mirror our own 
output. Yeah. Now, and if you happen to live in a world in which you feel you're not happy, then this is, has some bearing. If you do live in a world which you think you are happy and you meet good people, this also has some bearing because you need to uh, be grateful, appreciative of this. You, we need to own uh, authorship even in our virtues, not just in our hang-ups. We're very good in owning in our hang-ups. We're famous for making long lists of what's wrong with us. We shock Asian meditation teachers when we let them know about our enthusiasm for self-hatred. Yeah, that really takes them aback. We need a lot of meta homework for this to catch up. I want to turn back and look at that nimitta. Um, if we look at the suttas, the word nimitta occurs Sometimes in the meaning of giving a clue, you know, the Buddha gives Ananda a clue that, he's, that he will die very shortly. And the, te the texts tell us Ananda had his mind obscured by Mara, Mara the, um, uh, the force of darkness. And because of the, fo the force of darkness had uh, obscured Ananda's listening and understanding, Ananda did not pick up the nimitta, he did not pick up the clue the Buddha gave him, uh, that he will die soon. Meaning, Ananda should have asked, uh, may the Tathagata live out the Ian, please, may he live out, for, for, may he live on. Instead of that, uh, this is what he was later blamed for, Ananda did uh, miss the boat on that occasion. Um, talented man as he was, so he is rebuked after the death of the Buddha that while uh, the Buddha actually gave Ananda a clue, he didn't pick it up. So the term nimitta is clearly in the sense of clue. Uh, we have many times in the suttas we are told uh, the meditator, particularly in a satipatthana context or in a meditative context, we are told his attention does not grasp after the nimitta, after the sign, nor does it grasp after the secondary characteristic. So we have nimitta in the sense of a, um, a marker, yeah? a mark, something we latch onto. In uh, the Ratapala Sutta, we are told that the slave woman of the house, yes, I'm afraid Indian history had had slaves, um, the slave woman of the house did recognize Ratapala, who had in become a monk in the meantime. Uh, and Ratapala was from a good family and uh, against considerable uh, resistance, uh, left his family to become a monk. And on coming back, he was recognized, although he had you know, shaved his hair and beard and although he has, was now wearing a monk's robe, the slave woman recognized the nimitta on his body when she offered him food. Yeah. So she recognized as the first of the family that the son of the house is back. Yeah. Reminds you of the Greek story, isn't it? The, uh, Odysseus coming back and being disguised as a, what is it, a pig? Yeah, yeah, he's but he's uh, he's he's coming back as a disguised, uh, yeah, 
And again, somebody of the house, I forgot who. He was, he was recognized by, was it his dog? I thought also somebody else recognized a mark on his foot. Maybe I confused that with somebody, another story. So a nimitta as being something that is deeper than the f- topmost appearance. Yeah? The topmost appearance being you know, face and hair and beard and clothes. And yet here Ratapala is recognized. So we know nimitta is referring to something, a sign that is beyond the topmost layer of appearance. And we have a wonderful passage in, um, in another text. That's an interesting story, definitely worth reading. The uh, Chulavedala Sutta, where uh, Visaka, who in this case is a man, uh, already an anagami, so uh, a non-returner, comes to his ex-wife, who happens to be the Bhikkhuni Damadinam who is a complete, completely freed, so she's an arahant. And he comes and questions, he visits his ex-wife, who has become a nun, and um, he clarifies a few really lofty topics with her. So he asks her a series of quite difficult questions, and she, you know, stupendous uh, sequence of answers, clarifies in great, great detail and great, great terseness. Uh, response to his questions. Definitely worth a read. And at one point she declares uh, the four Satipatthana to be the nimitta of samadhi. She declares that the four foundations of mindfulness are the sign of unification of mind. That's an interesting one. So these, these nimittas are obviously used in a variety of ways. One of the things I found um, very confusing as a, as a young monk is when I read the Visuddhi Maka, which I was not encouraged because I was a forest monk, and forest monks don't read the Visuddhi Maka. Kind of, Visuddhi Maka is poo pooed in the forest tradition. Um, yeah, for good and bad reasons. The good reasons are that there are many things in there which are not really credible, and the bad reasons are that most people who poo poo it have never actually read it, Yeah, which is. Uh, should anything you poo-poo, you, you know, I believe intellectual integrity demands that you have acquaintance of before you poo-poo it. Um, anyway, I read it and I found it very strange that in the Visuddhimaka, nimittas are only visual. Yeah? So it seems that the sign in the mind is referring only to visual phenomena. But you have many signs, you know, if you have an earworm, if a sound, a song doesn't go out of your head, then this is a nimitta. Yeah. It's questionable whether this is a good samadhi object. It probably isn't. But we all have nimittas. If you have um, eaten um, you know, garlic pizza and you know, 10 hours later you still have garlic taste on your tongue, then this is the nimitta in the gustatory field. Yeah. If you hear... Uh, if you are around ringing telephones all day and then you go home and suddenly you're out there in the woodshed and it seems you you hear a telephone until you realize there are no telephones to ring. Then you have an auditory nimitta of, of say, telephones ringing. 
or if you if you do a mountain a lovely sort of alpine mountain hike can you 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 spend a few hours on snow or on ice and then you come back and three days later you close your eyes and you still have a snowy slope in front of your eyes yeah then this is a visual nimitta it's an after image of an actual visual or impression or an impression in any of the other sense channels when i spoke about this with thai meditation teachers they, they just laughed they all of them had no acquaintance with the, with the visuddhimagga they were very clear you have nimittas in all senses not just visual ones for some reason the other five sense channels have or the other four sense channels in the visuddhimagga have fallen out yeah so the idea that nimittas are only visual things, because the term sign in English language seems to also suggest that. Uh, but, you know, you can knock a few times, this is a sign, and this is not visual. Yeah? Even though the word sign seems to have, for the most case, uh, visual associations, actually, we, we're quite aware that there are other types of signs than, than visual ones. Uh, this is completely borne out by the other uses of the word. Uh, a clue. Uh, in some places, in the Nidana Samyutta, the term nimitta is often used as a cause, even a cause, something that is the trigger for a process to take place. So, when we are taught, this was all the prelude, huh? when we are taught uh, that we practice in a way that our attention does not grasp after the sign and does not grasp after the secondary characteristic. We have to be aware that uh, we are taught here that we learn to find out where our attention loses its impartiality, where it starts to latch on and snatch something, yeah? where this kind of clutching movement takes place. If attention is liberated, then we get types of samadhi that are described as animita samadhi. We, we acquire signlessness. One way of acquiring signlessness, in fact, the direct way to acquire signlessness, is the contemplation of the hallmark of transience. If we are more and more aware of how things change, then we stop fixing our attention on signs. Because we recognize change to be pervasive, we stop trying to latch on to particular dimensions, particular clues, nimitas, and then fixate that process we are just in touch with on that spot while the process moves away. Yeah? Remember, our sensory world is fluid is dynamic, is processual. Our thinking world is not. Yeah. We think in concepts. Concepts are stable. Concepts are relying on percepts. Percepts are frames, little captured snapshots of a fluid reality. Yeah. Reality moves on, sensory data <laughs> streaming away, and we have a percept here. We have a little snapshot and that snapshot gets a name, a caption. And that name and the snapshot we remember. This is Peter, this is Susie, this is Parsley, this is Basil. 
And I remember that. Peter, Susie, parsley, basil. I remember that. Uh, and whenever I see something green, I look, is this reasonably close to parsley or basil or neither? Yeah. Uh, parsley, basil, neither. I kind of try to recognize anything green growing uh, in in ways I don't quite understand, I kind of try to compare it with what I already know. Yeah? With attention going there, hovering for a moment and seeing whether I have recognition of this. Yeah? And when I have some recognition of this, a whole story starts. Yeah? I see, oh, this is basil there. Basil means um, pesto, means pe spaghetti, means means Susie, yeah, they go together. And I have a little story. I miss Susie because the last time I ate this stuff with Susie, you know, had a good time. So I am in my little story. The basil there, or what I think to be basil, what looks to me basil, uh, it may not be basil, but I have a little story going. I'm, I'm no longer with this there, I'm now with my story. Yeah, I've moved off. Now this process, frankly, is necessary. We need to have shortcuts, we need orientation, we need conceptual framing of our uh, sensory data. But many things can go wrong in that process. I can misconstrue what I see. I can have so charged memories of what I see that the charge of my memory takes over what actually takes place right now in my present moment. Yeah, that's most dramatic when we when uh, when we're traumatized but we're all to some degree traumatized you know we all carry echoes of bad stuff or good stuff which makes us possibly uh, blue-eyed or heedless or just slightly uh, losing contact with the rest of the world so what happens in between sensory data and what psychology would call apperception, the making sense of those data in terms of things we know, yeah? so that what we experience now connects in a meaningful way with what we already know, our experience, our memories, our, our understandings, our capacity to make inferences and all this. Many things can go wrong in that process. Yeah? And we often lose the immediacy of our experience. Now, the, the stronger the charges of that which we have remembered, you know, Basil, Susie, Peter, the stronger our feelings are around Basil, Susie, Peter and the parsley, you know, the stronger we will be pulled by this story away from what's actually happening here at this moment. And that's why it is important to recognize the nimitta, not just the nimitta uh, we may use as a samadhi object, but the nimitta that trigger our perceptual processes. Yeah. When we recognize the nimitta for our perceptual process, we have a much better chance before this whole avalanche gets triggered. So in a way we can distinguish nimitta on three levels. Nimitta as a marker where attention latches onto. Nimitta as a perception, as a basis for something we recognize and we have already a memory of and we already have a story with. And Nimitta as um, 
an echo in our mind, in the realm of sound, taste, touch, smell, uh, or visual, uh, sight, an echo that possibly could be the basis for deepening stillness. Some of those nimittas can be the basis for uh, growing unification of mind. One of my teachers, Ajahn Zmedo, is very famous for teaches his sound of silence story. You know, this is something he's made a lot of um, talks on. He's written a little booklet on. He has been criticized for it because it doesn't have... Um, it sounds a little bit like um, another Indian tradition, uh, but he has been adamant that this is, is a, a useful practice, this is a helpful practice. He has talked to uh, many of his students extensively about this, and I know he, he practices this. Yeah? Uh, and it's very simple. It is this, what the sound of silence he refers to as the increasing sound you may hear in your ears when you meditate, when your samadhi increases. Some people have that very quickly, and some people uh, never have it. So you can't infer that when you do not have it, that you have no samadhi, and that's bad. And you cannot infer that when you do have lots of it, that all is well with you. Yeah? Um, things are not necessarily well when you have a loud sound in your ears. Yeah? Uh, sometimes your doctor will tell you that this is tinnitus. Uh, and sometimes we experience this pleasant. Some of us experience sound of silence pleasant, and some of us experience that as unpleasant. For some of us, this is um, something to lean into, to find even refuge in, and to take take it as a vehicle to create a stillness. And for others, it just takes us to. Uh, it, it may be distracting, it may be um, unpeaceful. Some of us uh, just are taken to sleep. I belong to the category of people who are just taken to numbness. I have, being a good disciple of a, of a famous teacher, I try to make men much use of this particular method and I've, it has always had a, a very similar outcome. It just, I just go into sort of a numb state. And it has taken me years to give completely up on it. And I hereby declare I have completely given up on the, no, on the treading the path of sound of silence. I like it. I still like it. I like it. It's an indication for me that things are getting stiller. I like it when I read and it comes on. But as a meditation object, it has completely let me down. Yeah. So don't... I'm just doing this full disclosure, yeah, just, just in case you have similar experiences and do not blame yourself for this. Uh, we're very different, all of us have different stories, even psychological stories. If you take this long-term Buddhist vision, you can imagine how different our stories are if you take on a few more lifetimes. Um, it's hard really to, to address all of us in the same way. It's, it's, a, it's a little miracle that we understand each other, frankly, if you look at the diversity in our patterns and in our histories. All the more it is important that we recognize nimittas, yeah? that th these nimittas are quite personalized in some way. They have something to do with how our attention works, and they have something to do with how our mind works. Yeah? And while this mind does not belong to us, it is highly specific, it is highly individual. Yeah. 
There's no two amongst you who are similar. Believe me, I talk to all of you. Uh, so while we may resemble each other on a variety of levels, if it actually goes down to details, you know, we all need to find our own way into dealing with how our attention gets uh, caught into differing nimittas. The suttas teach us, if we want to meditate and still the mind, we need to learn to restrain our senses. Yeah. The other night I spoke to you about the indriyas. So one usage of the term indriya is the five indriyas I spoke of, the five spiritual faculties, but there is another term, and I believe I have touched this very briefly, that the, the Vedic god Indra speaks of a force, of a dynamic force that sometimes makes us do things, not always do the things we want to do. You know? There is an acknowledgement that in the Indriyas, and this time the term is not the, does not refer to the spiritual faculties, but it refers to the sense faculty. Yeah? Sometimes these senses make us do things we don't want to do. And Buddhist teaching has understood that it is necessary to learn how to modulate sensory input because many of the things that create suffering in our lives and in the lives of people around us begin with our res immediate response to sensory input. Yeah. How we create out of sensory input nimitas, we latch onto, we attach, we identify with, we, we, we construe into perceptual fields, we make concepts out of these perceptions, we embark on big proliferating stories. Yeah. And one way of learning to modulate this process is by just taking it down and see where does my attention actually rest on? Where does it latch onto? Where does it, what does it seek out? Yeah. What does it seek out? I told this story uh, on another occasion, I believe, down at the RC. Uh, one of my, uh, a friend, and who uh, we watched a movie together. The movie was 12 Angry Men, a great movie. Um, and um, he was, after about 20 minutes, he said, but there is, is there no woman in there? Yeah. And he was clearly seeking, you know, his model of a movie was basically a story, and in that story there must be a pretty woman somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, unfortunately, I dragged him into this twelve angry men, which you know it doesn't take a lot of fantasy to assume that women play a rather inferior role in twelve angry men. Yeah, you do get a warning. The title does tell you a little bit something. Yeah? And he was basically horrified. You know, I, he was basically. The, seek, the seeking of the sign of the female in there was completely frustrated. I think there is an usher that kind of brings it, <laughs> turns up at one stage, if I remember vaguely, but <laughs> the, the whole movie, more or less, <laughs> remorselessly, <laughs> deals with men <laughs> in a courtroom <laughs> situation. <laughs> um, and he just, he, just couldn't, he just couldn't believe uh, his... Um, his eyes, just that, the, that something called a movie does not produce, you know, a pretty long female lead. Yeah, this is this was kind of deeply offensive to him in some way. 
which I think is an interesting concept, isn't it? You know, it tells it tells us something about. And he wasn't say he, he didn't say she needed to be pretty or half naked or anything like that. He just a, just a, a woman. He just wanted a woman in there. And when I think about this, he was clearly looking for the sign of the female in there, in a rather hopeless corner at that uh, for that matter. But we look for things like strength, stability masculinity, femininity, uh, gratification, hope, brightness, you know. I'm sure you will find things you recognize your attention seeking, seeking for, yeah. Seeking for something to look forward to, seeking for solace, seeking for a little hit, seeking for openness, I live in a city and I'm basically a mountain boy. And just sometimes I sit on my bicycle and I drive up on the bridge in the evening. <laughs> That's where I see above the houses, yeah. And it's quite amazing how just it's it's a ridiculous little shift of perspective. It's barely 30 meters, but somehow you you see over the treetops and you see over the houses. And I notice every time I do this something lift in my chest. We have a wonderful rose garden built on an old rampart. And you can go up there on that rampart and then you have a rose garden at the height of treetops. This is very unusual. Usually rose gardens are down and the treetops are above. And I didn't understand what caught me so at the first time I was. But then I realized it's this unusual perspective that the roses and the treetops are at the same level. Yeah. So there is the roses and there is the treetops because the trees are growing down below and the rampart takes you up and the rose garden is up. So you have a rose garden in quasi in the, in the upper story. At the, um, and there's something magic. And I, every time I go there, I notice something widens in my chest. It's an almost physiological process. Just because I have vision, yeah? I have sight, I have some open spaces. Mountain bumpkins in here, you will probably recognize the feeling. Just kind of seeing a little bit into the distance opens the chest. So this, this, the sign of spaciousness, yeah. people struggling with sleepiness suddenly finding that uh, turning into the light makes a difference. Yeah. Or um, freshness, something that is not dead, something that is not artificial, something that is not manufactured things that are fresh, yeah. not just to eat, but even to look at or to breathe or to... Yeah. We, uh, we notice that our attention responds to particular signs. You just notice suddenly that, uh, you know, kids don't interest you. Teenagers, what, you know, what can you talk with a teenager? It's kind of, it's a sort of a, a funny thing. It's, it pretends to be adult and it's obviously not. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand them. They seem to know everything and actually know nothing, you know. And they have no life experience and yet they seem to know everything better. So, you know, suddenly you notice that every time 
you see teenagers, they're just dizzying, they're just totally disinteresting to you. Or, or you, you notice that there's groups, segments of people you just never talk to. Old men or old women or, or, or kids, depending on what your life looks like. You just, you don't connect to kids. You don't connect to men. You don't connect to women. There's whole groups of people. Anybody in a uniform, just never talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> or people have tattoos or short cropped blue hair or something like that. You just notice that there is a sign there which says not interesting or not my ilk of people or not, not trustworthy or I'm not one of them. Or Maybe you notice such signs. And we respond to those signs much more than we respond to the people. Yeah. We, these signs, remember, these signs are made. Somebody described um, you know, what happens uh, when she sees burly white men playing country music in their pickup trucks. You know, what happens in her when she, when one of these men in a pickup truck playing country music stops? What happens to a, uh, a slender built uh, woman of Asian origin, you know, out in the American countryside? <laughs> Just describing to me, I was utterly baffled when I heard what signs come up. You know. I realized I'd never thought of this. You know, I'm not a particularly great country fan myself. I, I, I don't have a pickup truck. I don't have strong feelings about pickup trucks. But for her, you know, all these were signs. These were signs of danger. These were signs of threat. These were signs of people belonging to a group of people who um, she secretly suspected want to send her home. You know? And when one of these guys finally stopped at the moment where she expected to be told off and actually pulled out the money and helped her pay the fuel bill because she struggled with her credit card, she was completely, she was in tears. Yeah. Because the sign was, was not met. You know, she realized her, the construction of the story, now I'm being told off and sent home. <laughs> Or, or accused of having no clue of this and maybe go where I was born or where, I, where he thought I was born. Instead of that, meeting actually a friendly, helpful, supportive human being completely uh, took her aback and made her realize what, what signs she had latched onto. You know, all the, the escalation moment, he stops. <laughs> He kind of turns down the window. He says something I don't understand. Now he opens the door, comes over. You know, all this is kind of escalation stages. And suddenly she finds, you know, he's actually nice. And you know, this could have been us. We all have our signs. We all have our trigger points. We all latch on to things. Things we find quite charming. Um, if the grand teacher you know, parks his shoes shoddily and they're thrown over the top. It's a charming little idiosyncrasy of the grand teacher, you know, and thereby showing us that he's not attached to order and ritual and rules and, and monastic strictures. If, uh, you know, um, if, you know, shoddy little novice does this, 
um, thing with the shoes, then you know this is just a, a sign of lack of respect, lack of discipline, lack of commitment. Uh, the same little gesture that we thought was a charming indication of a teacher's grand non-attachment to rules becomes an expression of just negligence. So we have, you know, we respond to signs, and these signs are construed by our story, by our mind, generally on the basis of very, very little substantial evidence. And off we are in our stories. So it is important to recognize that attention deals with nimittas on many levels. On one level, it actually latches onto it, uses a particular things that act as markers. Now, what these things are is decided by this mind. It is not decided by the thing in itself, but it is decided by this mind what the marker is. Then attention goes to that marker, takes it up, and makes that marker the basis of a perception. Yeah. It apperceives this. It makes sense of what it has grasped as a sign in terms of what it already knows. And then, uh, possibly, that perception becomes, on a third level, a sign that acts as the foundation for a whole emotional or a whole cognitive process. You know, that gets us going into channel three and channel four. Um, if we can understand how to restrain our sensory activity so much that the speed becomes slower of this process, slow enough that we can notice the mind reaching out to such nimittas, reaching out to such signs and characteristics, and picking them up, L being on the outlook, yeah, on the prowl for kind of getting something in there, making a little story. Yeah. It's really difficult to say, be confronted with something we have no recognition whatsoever. I remember looking at my first page of Thai text, just looking, I knew nothing about Thai language when I went to Thailand, and just looking at Thai text, and you just don't recognize one single character. You know, just there's something really offensive about a piece of text telling you, I am charged with meaning. Yeah, and at the same time, you. <laughs> You have no access to this whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. It tells you, I am full of meaning, you know. I am full of concepts. I am full of con consensual reality. <laughs> and it tells you, <laughs> you do not understand the thing about me. Yeah. There's something slightly insulting about this. Yeah. If you have any little bit of ego left, if you have learned to read text, if you've learned to uh, languages maybe, if you learn to make sense of statements and... Um, and ex extricate in interpretations out of uh, uh, semantic structures, then a whole page of something that is charged with meaning of which you have no way even to understand one sil single syllable. In fact, you don't even know what a syllable is because <laughs> Thai words particularly <laughs> run into each other. You don't even know where the word begins and where it ends. <laughs> It's something quite um, threatening, you know, if you've, you, you learn how you have become accustomed to become a meaning-generating mind 
And suddenly there's something that says, you can't do that with me. Yeah. It's quite disturbing. So learning to slow down the process so much by sensory restraint, by minimizing the impact, the impingements, so that we become more circumspect, more prudent, and more aware of how our attention reaches out, what it reaches out to. Our Vedana practice of today is a good example. Yeah? I, I'm pretty sure you will find out with no difficulty that your mind is, is um, what's the word? What do highwaymen, highwaymen do? They wait in, in, in ambush. Yeah? So attention, lying in ambush, waiting for some nice thing to kind of crop up, ready, you know, trigger happy, yeah? ready to jump out. If you slow that down, you really see how your mind does that. Anything that moves. Initially it was people, now it's bees or ants, anything, anything you know. <laughs> a leaf falling off a tree, just anything. Just give, give me some action, yeah, 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 or just anything to go in, anything to give me meaning. Yeah. We're not strict on not reading on this retreat, but if you're strict on not reading, I was so suffering, I was embarrassed. I remember sitting at the retreat, and then there was, I was sitting on the loo, and there was a label there. There was a label on the on the, on the, on the bin. The bin had a label. I remember grasping that bin and kind of greedily reading that label. This is kind of. I realized for years and years I had read every time before I put my head down on the pillow I had been reading. So it was very difficult for me to n to put down my head on the pillow without reading. It just it was it felt like I felt I was an addict. You know, there have been times in my life I've been reading thousands and thousands of <laughs> of words. <laughs> I just I just couldn't believe that I was not supposed to be reading for ten days. It's really shocking to me that I could, you know, I think I can't fall asleep if I can't read. You know, it's, it's kind of reading is a normal human body function. You know, you can't, it's like breathing, isn't it? <laughs> I say, no, no, it's not actually. You know, people, it's, it's a cultural effort. You know, this humanoids have lived on this planet for a long time before they started reading. <laughs> it's so hard. Everything in me was. And it wasn't discerning, you know. It wasn't saying I I need poetry or or or, or you know well crafted prose or it wasn't discerning. It wasn't saying English or French. No, 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 no. Just anything. A label of cleaning agents was just good enough. Just anything. Just kind of ha. Yeah. <laughs> so you see, those would be reaching out for the nimitta of kind of symbols, meaning creating symbols. And years and years of training your attentional faculty to, to do this sort of thing creates an imprint. Years of discerning men and women as men and women create such an imprint that we're really struggling when somebody claims not to be exactly a man or not to be exactly a woman, you know? There's, we, there's something that is uneasy about this because we've been used to, to the binary pattern for a long time. I remember meeting my first Asian person when I was a kid. I met a Tibetan boy. You know, Switzerland has Tibetans. Tibet took, took in Tibetan refugees. They came 59. They, 
So, and this Tibetan kid looked Tibetan. And the really shocking thing was he spoke to me in Swiss German, which you don't learn Swiss German until you grow, un unless you grow up there. So if you grow up there, then you don't look Tibetan, okay? And <laughs> if you look Tibetan, then you don't Swiss German. I, I was 10, 12, and I looked at this, and he spoke flawless Swiss German, because, you know, this is where he grew up. Obviously, that's, he learned it as easy as I did, because that's what you do when you grow up there. <laughs> but I didn't, in my head, this, this I, I was shocked, you know, I was shocked. Seeing something, oh, this is not right, you know, this kind of, I remember this kind of, this shouldn't be like that, you know, this is not correct here. How can you look that way and speak that way, you know? And now it sounds totally grotesque, but then, you know, I, I had consciously met the first time in my life somebody who I, I, I had to say does not look like he is from my ethnic group, and yet he sounds as if he must be. Yeah. And I, the first time in my life I encountered the, the jarring of my perceptual um, self-understanding there. I'm embarrassed when I tell you today, but it is exactly how it felt. You know, I felt, how can, how can this be possible? How can this be allowed? <laughs> you know, and he was flawless. I, there was no way I could fault him on that one. You know, there was not the slightest tinge of an accent. Everything was perfect in him, only he didn't look like I thought people supposed to look when they speak that kind of language, which is weird, yeah. We're moving away from this, but the nimitta, well, what is normal and what is conform, conforming to our expectations are very strong ways how we construe our reality. And if things are offensive in, in, insofar as they deviate from our expectancy, uh, from our expectations, we often react, we go into a very unhappy story. We feel insecure. We feel annoyed, we feel uh, embarrassed, we feel confused. And all this because we have identified a particular nimitta and gone into a story about this nimitta. It's quite possible to speak with a Tibetan-looking boy in Swiss German. That's quite possible. There's nothing in the world that stops you to do this. As I did after a moment, but... I remember it to the day, yeah. How, how jarring I have found that. Looking for nimittas, nimittas where our attention lands. Sometimes where our attention doesn't land is equally telling, yeah. Things we do not notice, things we do not pick up on, things we do not deem worthy of discernment. And then obviously, once we have landed, how we sort solidify the story and it grows, it starts to, to you know, to, to have um, things, knots kind of seem to grow around it. Well, knots of a story, associations, corroborating the feeling we associate with it. And then you generally move off, connecting with past, possible future. So have a look out for some nimitas as the place where your attention lands. Obviously, 
the sensation of breathing as a landing point for your anapanasati attention would be uh, recommended as a as a sort of mainstay for your practice but i am sure that your attention will occasionally land on other things and it may be quite useful to acknowledge some of the things you of the things that move and where it kind of where you feel the click yeah sometimes you almost feel a click ah that was it now she did it yeah or this is the bit that's interesting or ooh this is the bit that gets me annoyed or this is the bit that I'm confused by, yeah? Just noticing this kind of thing, where our attention latches onto or where it, um, I, I'm missing the word. Basically, it's an almost mechanical uh, sinking in, something locks, something keys into. Yeah, so ponder this and um, we'll continue. <laughs> 